Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. All right, welcome back to the Evanist History Podcast, everybody. Woo! This is Season 2, Episode 32, the 1952 Bible Conference, Part 1. Yeah! So happy that you can join us. Just to clue you in on what we talked about last time, last time we stepped back and talked about the centennial celebration of 1844. That took place back in, well, do your math, 1944. A hundred years, guys! A hundred years since 1844. I... I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. I know some of you have written me and said that you have a hard time wrapping your head around that. I mean, it'd been a hundred years in 1944. And, you know, we just talk about William Miller and those events in the Millerite movement so much that it just, it always seems recent and always seems more recent than it is. I also talked about how the church had spent uh, some time talking about the uh, 175th anniversary, I guess it was. And uh, how, we're, how we're not actually too far away from the 200th anniversary here, which is going to take place, of course, in 2044. How do you think the church should commemorate that? You think there's a difference between it being 100 years and 200 years? I don't know. Uh, anyway, so just by way of a reminder, our social media person slash producer slash jack of all trades, Jason Vanderlaan, and I sat down for a discussion. Um, we're doing this video thing on our YouTube channel, and then you can find that at Adventist History Podcast, I think, on YouTube. I'm starting to transfer things over to Adventist History Network because obviously we have more than this podcast now. We have the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with Michael Campbell and Greg Howell, which is doing really, really well as well. I produced that one, and those guys lead it. So that's a little bit more academically focused. But anyway, so we're trying to kind of broaden our horizons here, maybe publish some books or papers someday. And uh, if you have anything you want to send in, we'll be happy to take a look at it. Um, just kind of popular things along those lines. Anyways, so if the last episode was a step back, because we had covered the post-World War II era, the rebuilding era in our episode when the smoke cleared, and then we took a step back a couple of years to deal with 1944. Now we're going to take a leap forward, and we're going to talk about the 1952 Bible Conference. We're going to start talking about the 1952 Bible Conference. I want to just set your expectations on that, because we're trying to get here from the late 1940s to 1952. So we've got to get moving here. We're going to start with the 1950 General Conference session. All right. The 1950 General Conference session must have, I think it must have seemed a little surreal because <laughs> the Great War was over, but also the war was only beginning. Thousands of Adventists had again descended upon San Francisco mere weeks after 75,000 North Korean soldiers invaded the South. They crossed the 38th parallel and invaded the South. While America had only limply supported the South Korean government before that point, the invasion was immediately cast in terms of this new Cold War, that this wasn't just a civil war between Koreans. This was a part of the great controversy between democracies and communists around the world, right? That attitude. And uh, yeah, great controversy. Words were chosen intentionally, people. 
As Adventists walked the streets in San Francisco, they no doubt read headlines like this one from the San Francisco Examiner, which came just a few days after they would have arrived. Churches back action in Korea, which described how the World Council of Churches had voted to endorse the sending of troops to Korea. They would have read reports like military officials were instructed not to tell when a unit is transferring its sailing date, its strength, or its equipment. So you had to be careful what you reported on. If you happen to see a unit marching down the streets, looks like it was heading toward the docks or something, you're not supposed to say which unit is that. Don't publish it. Don't let it out. Trying to disguise that military strength. Some voluntary censorship what the government was calling for yet again. It's like, didn't we just go through this? Didn't we just deal with all this? Oh, man. Now, the early days of that war saw some intense fighting, and some Adventists at the GC session were worried about their families back in Korea. One missionary related how the last thing he saw in Korea, the last thing he saw was a bricklayer building a new church steeple while an American and North Korean plane fought overhead. Can you just imagine that situation? Can you just place yourself there? You're just building the steeple. <laughs> You're laying bricks. And then and then just overhead, these planes are like fighting to the death. And you're just kind of going about your job. <laughs> oh, man. What a mess war is. Well, this war, unlike the last one, didn't prevent nearly a thousand delegates from gathering in San Francisco. Delegates from around the world. A thousand of them. Boy, Adventism is growing. If you've been keeping score, yes, Adventists do seem to meet in the Bay Area a lot. It's not just your imagination. Nine of the first 16 GC sessions of the 20th century were held in the Bay Area. That is more than half of the GC sessions there. The first 16 in the 20th century were held in the Bay Area. One in Oakland, the rest in San Francisco. Uh, they, They usually met in the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. That's what it's called today. It wasn't called that then. Now, I should probably mention the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium has no relation to Billy Graham, okay? Not, not the evangelist, different guy, different guy. The Civic Auditorium was also home to the Opus 500, which was built to be one of the largest pipe organs in the world, With and it was estimated 7,500 pipes, And the thing weighed 40 tons. 40 tons! Now, you can see it today if you want. It's actually being, it's actually boxed up in the basement of the building. It's too expensive to restore after it was damaged by an earthquake in the 80s. So it's just kind of sitting there hoping somebody will, I guess, produce the funds to to fix it and relocate it. And you can imagine with with an organ like that, one of the one of the biggest organs in the world. You can imagine how much Adventists were looking forward to playing that sucker. So maybe that's why they kept going to the Bay Area. I don't know. San Francisco welcomed the Adventists much like Adventists are welcomed today during GC sessions. If you've been to one, then you understand. Local businesses put signs in their windows. and Local politicians come out to greet the session. You know, they, they come out and say, greetings from the city of whatever. Or sometimes other politicians will come out as well. It amused Adventists to find a local cigarette store had put a, a sign in the window that read, Welcome Seventh-day Adventists. 
and so did a steak restaurant <laughs> right across from the the hotel where church leadership was staying. <laughs> I mean, I feel for these business owners because they probably just heard, you know, tens of thousands of, of outsiders are coming to our city and <laughs> this is going to be great for business. <laughs> oh, those poor people. Oh, man. Uh, one could you could probably <laughs> you could probably imagine they experience their own great disappointment. <laughs> oh, anyways, California's Governor Earl Warren showed up to greet the delegates. Not usually, of course, this was a formality. Welcome to our city. Welcome to our state. That kind of thing. And then people clap, and then you get out of there. <laughs> but you know, Earl Warren didn't. Earl Warren stayed for two hours. He sat on the stage while speeches were being made, the welcoming ceremony, all that kind of stuff. And and then he stayed afterwards and, and was there shaking hands with people. Now, this was kind of remarkable because, A, I mean, a lot of these people don't live in California. They're not going to be voting for you, buddy. So the fact that he stayed around afterwards was uh, impressive, although the fact that he was going to run for president uh, or was, yeah, uh, maybe was by this point. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, may have something to do with that. But anyways, it impressed the Adventist. Carlisle B. Haynes reported that that Warren was heartily applauded by the delegates and by staying longer than he needed to, he, quote, notably enhanced the esteem in which he is held by all who know him, end quote. Well, okay. Warren, of course, had been the California Attorney General when the Japanese in the state were rounded up and interned in camps. He then went on to become a very popular governor, which is what he was here, and uh, the first and only, by the way, to win three consecutive terms. He lost his bid for the presidency to Dwight Eisenhower because, I mean, come on, how are you going to beat Ike? But nevertheless, he was appointed by Eisenhower as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. I might add, the most consequential... Chief Justice in this century, in the 20th century. In 1963, he heard a case about an Adventist woman being fired for refusing to work on the Sabbath, and uh, and he sided with the Adventist woman. So, you know, I don't know. Right now, he, he was just another politician smiling in a sea of Sabbath keepers. But for, you know, Haynes saying that... Uh, He's uh, notably enhanced the esteem in which he is held by all who know him. Probably true. I mean, he was a popular guy, but you know, uh, that Japanese thing is kind of hard to get out of your out of your system. Shouldn't be so so eager to forget what happened there. Anyways, General Conference President James McElhaney almost missed the entire thing, the entire General Conference session. He was actually had taken ill on his way over, had had to be flown to the Glendale Sanitarium. He managed to show up at the opening of the session, but his doctor insisted that another man, his secretary, A.W. Cormack, read his address to the delegates. And so Cormack did, Earl Warren sitting there on the stage with them. And when, he, when Cormack was nearly finished, getting down to the last few sentences, McElhaney rose to read the final sentences himself. Quote, after serving in this office for 14 years during times of difficulty, stress, and strain, I have fully decided that I should tell you that I am not to be considered for further service as president of the General Conference. End quote. McElhaney said that he was 
joyfully stepping aside. <laughs> we know, of course, that McElhaney didn't didn't particularly enjoy his time as president, but I just love how dedicated he was to to not only being there at the session, but also to making it absolutely clear to everyone that he was done as the general conference president. <laughs> it's like, he's not feeling well, you know, kind of barely gets there. His doctors are like, don't get up and speak. And he's like, the only lines of this speech I actually want to give are the lines in which I say I'm done. <laughs> Couldn't leave that in somebody else's hands. Well, anyways, you know, it was, it was expected. People knew that he wasn't going to run again. And the nominating committee worked very quickly and, 24 hours later, William Henry Branson was nominated for president, and he was elected unanimously. Now, I'll say a quick word here to introduce Branson to you before we move on. Branson was born on a farm in southern Illinois, but he grew up in Florida, arguing with his dad about religion. His dad never really bought in, it seems, and uh, and they, they've had frequent discussions. His mom became Adventist, and uh, Will got married at 17, got a job as a cook, in Salt Lake City, called back to Florida by the conference. He was ordained by Arthur Daniels in 1910 when he was just 23 years old. Get this, get this. We talked about this in the bonus episode with McElhaney, the August bonus episode. But if you think McElhaney is insane uh, in, in terms of how fast he was moving from place to place, look at this. Uh, Branson was ordained at 23 years of age in 1910. He was made conference president the next year. The next year, yeah, figure that one out. Four years later, <laughs> at about 28 or so, he was president of the Southern Union. Four years after that, Arthur Daniels put his hand on his shoulder and asked, Branson, are you willing to go to Africa? And so in his early 30s, William Branson was president of the African Division. That's insane. Now, I mean, please understand. At this part in Adventist history, we're talking about the African division. We're talking about a lot of territory and not a whole lot of infrastructure, okay? It's not, you know, I don't know. It's kind of when somebody says, I manage a company, but it's like I've got two people under me at this tiny company. It's not as prestigious as saying I manage like a whole division at Microsoft or something. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not trying to take anything away from the guy. I'm just trying to say the divisions at this point was not super well-developed. You know, he's, he's still going to have to get his hands dirty out there, but still the title. I mean, come on, in your early 30s, you're president of a division in the church? That's incredible. He would move on to China and from there to the president's chair. Branson had, in the strictest sense, I think, never really served as a local church pastor, at least not for long. I mean, he had far, far more experience in administration than he did in pastoral ministry or evangelism. And if I may add one more thing, a little cruel historical irony, perhaps, just something to know about Branson. Uh, he could be a bit of a kind of a red-headed, zealous bulldog wanting to defend the faith of the church. But his grandson would end up being Ron Numbers, who wrote Prophetess of Health, which uh, no doubt unintentionally, would go on to undermine many Adventist faith in the 1970s. So there's a connection between Will Branson and Ron Numbers there. And uh, so it's just kind of, yeah, it's a little bit of an irony that one was so eager to defend the church and the other one uh, less eager to defend the church, we'll say. Anyways, one of Branson's priorities was to see another Bible conference. 
The last official Bible conference had been held in 1919, which was behind closed doors, if you remember. And while many found it refreshing and helpful, it had also kind of blown up in Arthur Daniels' face because our old friend Judson Washburn, who I should remind you is still alive and still honorary in 1950. Yeah, anyways, that guy kind of helped make sure it blew up in Daniels' face. Okay, now I have to just, uh, I'm on a sidetrack again because I mentioned Washburn. I need like a code word for him so I don't have to say his name because it just gets me going. Okay, I promise we're going to get to the Bible conference. I just have to stop, just little pit stop here, rest area, and just complain about Judson Washburn. <laughs> In May 1950, a few months before the GC session, Washburn received a letter, I think probably from his old collaborator, Claude Holmes, speculating about who might replace McElhaney as president. Like I said, it wasn't a big secret that he wanted out. Uh, so we're going to assume Holmes wrote the letter. It's just very, very likely. Um, anyways, the letter said, quote, I, don't, I do not see much presidential timber in sight, end quote, meaning he, he didn't think there were many qualified people around to become the next General Conference president after McElhaney. And the letter was just typical of the pair. Uh, they, they shared a conspiracy theory that Arthur Daniels never actually finished his book before he died, his last book, that it was ghostwritten by somebody else, maybe Leroy Froome. Uh, they complained about church leaders. They resolved to oppose this, this newfangled interpretation of the daily from Daniel 8, which, guys, was something that started 40 years before. And it's just this kind of, this the tone of the letter. It's just so common to the letters that these two share where it's just, you know, they're just kind of picking at people. Um, you know, did you hear this? I heard this. You know, kind of a tone. Um, you know, Washburn was again at this time circulating a letter he had received from 1910 where Ellen White basically said that she had lost all faith in Arthur Daniels. I mean, just kind of really very, very loosely paraphrasing here. Uh, you know, she had lost all faith in Arthur Daniels over the daily controversy. So, you know, this was a testimony. Somebody said that they heard Ellen White say that back in 1910. So Washburn was circulating it again here in the 1940s. And this time another Arthur, not Arthur Daniels, but Arthur White, Ellen White's grandson, called Washburn's tactic misleading and said that uh, he didn't think that 1910 document was authentic. And so Washburn should not be circulating it. Now, Claude Holmes also did his best to recruit President Branson to his cause, Holmes was trading shots with Leroy Froome at the time, was hoping that Branson would join the crusade. And Branson was out of town when Holmes's letter arrived at the office, and so uh, Branson's secretary wrote Holmes back to acknowledge receipt of the letter. The secretary wrote that it was nice to see that Holmes was still contending for the faith. Holmes wrote to Washburn, quote, I like the sound of this kind of letter. A lot can be read between the lines, end quote. Now, whether the secretary was just being nice, right? Like, hey, good to see you're doing well and you still got that fire, that zealous fire in your heart. Or whether the secretary was signaling, as Holmes wanted to believe, that he was a fellow ultra-conservative in the fight, we may never know. Holmes died a couple of years later. Washburn would follow in 1955. Both would continue agitating to save the church from error until the very end. It's interesting, though, how their arguments in the 1920s caused such a splash such a scandal in the church, and yet by the 1940s and 50s when they're playing the same cards, it just it kind of, I don't want to say it barely made a difference, but let's just say it didn't make the same impact it had made back then. Okay, 
I'm going to breathe now. Whew. I apologize for this rare medical condition called being triggered by Washburn and Holmes. I understand that there is no cure. Anyway, now that that's out of my system, we can move on. The 1952 Bible Conference was a, a blossoming of Adventist scholarship. Ever since Adventists began feeling free to attend other universities to receive doctorates in the early 1900s, it was only a matter of time before they felt the pull to assemble together and perform that ancient academic ritual of reading papers to each other in the same room. Scholars had begun banding together in the early 1940s in forming the Bible Research Fellowship, but this made church leaders nervous, particularly Branson, and it was shut down. Now, the church didn't shut it down. Branson just said uh, that he doesn't think it should exist. And, of course, being good Seventh-day Adventists, they, they voluntarily disbanded. Okay, we'll talk about that more about that later. Uh, the 1952 Bible Conference was this, this uh, blossoming of Adventist scholarship because it, 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 it was the start of this decade of Adventist scholarship that produced the Bible Conference, of course, then the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, and after that we have like a book like Questions on Doctrine, right, which is kind of a, uh, well, that's going to be a fun series of episodes, okay? But but like they really start to get active. We start seeing these scholarly societies after the, after the Bible Research Fellowship closes, it's replaced by another and then another and another, right? And we're, we're getting these scholarly societies popping up in the church after this point. And, uh, you know, they've begun collaborating on these projects. They've been collaborating ever since. In the Bible Research Fellowship, we see this, a kind of calcification of an academic elite in the church. Those are people who, while loyal to the church, nevertheless want to professionally interact with their counterparts in other denominations, or no denominations, right, the non-religious um, or, or non-Christian. Some would see that as dangerous, these are the academic elites who would like to be free to ask questions, be free to explore topics. And again, some would see that as dangerous. And so the academic elites would also like to gather together in, in, in confidence, right, to have these conversations and debates that church members at large would not understand or appreciate. And I, I, if you get this, if you get what I'm saying, you get what I'm saying. If, if you don't, um, then, then you don't. <laughs> I think trying to figure out how best to, to put this. I, people who have gotten their master's degrees, even a bachelor's degree or doctorate or something, they're looking to have conversations at that level with other people. And sometimes they can't do that in a local church, do you understand? And so they're looking for other people who, who are kind of at that same, or willing to have the same level of conversation with them that they can do that with. And they understand that sometimes when you have these conversations that some people are going to misunderstand them, they're going to make assumptions about them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that tends toward kind of a more closed society. There was a rule with the Bible Research Fellowship that even though they would spread these papers around to hundreds of Bible teachers who are a part of this fellowship, that uh, these papers cannot leak out into the public, to the Adventist public, unless the author gives permission for it. So if you're on the outside of that little group, if you're on the outside of that fellowship, you know, you can understand how some people would be suspicious of this. Like, what are they talking about in there? 
Are they entertaining heresy? Is this the Omega apostasy that we have always expected, right? Because these people went to universities where they were trained by people who weren't Adventists, who weren't like us. Okay, so what I'm trying to say here when I say that this was a, a blossoming of Adventist scholarship is that in, in the good sense, it's like this is the beginning of these great contributions that Adventist scholars are going to make together. They're going to start collaborating together, meeting together, cross-pollinating intellectually together. But it's also, um, I don't want to say it's the beginning of suspicion about the academic elites, certainly not, but this is going to intensify over time. And so this kind of divide that, that exists within Adventist today, in Adventism today, between the, between the academic circles of the church and the non-academic circles of the church, um, this is kind of this origin point of it. Okay, before this, it was like there was only a few people with with these doctorates in high places in the church, and so, you know, you, it was a it was kind of a more personal thing, right? It was like Washburn and Holmes and the, and some of the people that they represented against Prescott, like this person Prescott, and and maybe some of the people Prescott had influenced. It was just kind of a small scale thing, and and now. Because every Adventist university is is receiving people with these higher degrees, more and more of them, um, it becomes kind of a cultural divide in the church in some ways. So this is kind of where this is this uh, is really accelerating. This is really developing around this time. Uh, according to Ray Cottrell, who was one of these members of the Bible Research Fellowship. It was at one of these gatherings of scholars, not not actually a Bible Research Fellowship gathering, but a different one with many of the same people, that led to the 1952 Bible Conference in the first place. Okay, so who was part of this Bible Research Fellowship? It's not a it's not a heretical list of people. You have Leroy Froome, you have William Spicy Spicer, you have George McCready Price, and other Adventists who who shared these papers, who they wanted to critique each other's work, create a safe place for discussion, that sort of thing. Um, what kind of things did they write? Well, Leroy Froome sent his paper on the history of the daily controversy. He was interested in that history. And that may have been what stoked up the fire with Holmes. Uh, maybe he caught wind of that paper circulating. And so Holmes and Washburn, of course, are going to maybe renew the fight. Or maybe they never stopped. But, you know, otherwise it wasn't an especially controversial group, as far as I can tell. It was, it was supposed to be a place for academic freedom, you know, where iron sharpens iron. Then you had a lightning rod in, in Australia, or all the lightning rods in Adventist history in Australia. Uh, you know, there's some Aussie listeners, right, and they're smiling. They're not offended by that. They're smiling. <laughs> um, anyways, his name was Lewis Weir. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, he, had, he attracted some theological controversy, and he pointed to a poll that had been taken among these Adventist scholars that I gathered in America and said, look, they agree with me. And so that's that caught the attention of Branson, who stepped in and was like, hey, what do you mean you agree with him? You know, you guys, is this part of a rebellion in the church? Is this part of, uh, you know, some trouble that's brewing? So he asked that the Bible Research Fellowship would close. The Bible Research Fellowship was really just a voluntary society of Bible teachers at English-speaking Adventist colleges. I mean, almost all of them, if you... If you uh, read Cottrell, it's basically almost all of them. They just got together and decided that they were going to form a society. They were going to pay dues. They were going to share papers, that kind of stuff. Um, and anyways, and so, you know, the fact that it wasn't under the general conference or any kind of church hierarchy was considered suspicious by some. And 
Branson asked that it would close, and Ray Cottrell believed that Branson set up the Bible conference in part as a reaction to the Lewis Weir controversy in Australia, but also uh, the Bible Research Fellowship, its independence. It's like, hey, we can gather our own scholars, and, and other things that were floating around, right? The, the nebulous specter of heresy and all of that. In other words, in other words, the 1952 Bible Conference didn't, didn't just come out of nowhere. It wasn't just a, hey, this seems like a good idea. Of course, most people were unaware of this background to the Bible Conference. Just it, For them, it probably did just seem to come out of nowhere. And as we're going to see, that may have led to some suspicion of it, okay? Because the idea of having a Bible conference was unexpectedly contentious. The decision was made by the General Conference Committee back in October of 1951, and the rationale given was pretty straightforward. Quote, we have felt for many years the need for a representative Bible conference at which the fundamental doctrines of Seventh-day Adventists may be studied. End quote. Fourteen topics were to be included, such as the central theme of our message, righteousness by faith, the latter rain, uh, what does it mean to finish the work, in other words? And how shall we reach the great cities? And finally, the place of prophecy in our preaching. I mean, as you can tell from these topics, they're, they're interesting topics. They're, they're kind of general topics. And, uh, and this is what was going to be discussed at the Bible conference. The plan was for representatives from all over the world and the church's major institutions to gather together, present papers on these subjects, and have like 10 minutes to discuss them. You may wonder, what on earth is contentious about that? Now, you have to read between the lines a little bit here, because when church leaders went public with the news that they were going to have a Bible conference, they constantly had to defend the existence of such a conference. Church members apparently thought this was a plot to reshape Adventist theology, in almost every article about the Bible conference, church leaders were pushing back against this rumor. In the ministry, Branson devoted an entire article to explaining why the church was even having a Bible conference. Its purpose, he wrote, quote, is to help us all see how we can present these timeless truths most effectively in these challenging times, end quote. Okay. And, and don't worry, he added, our goal isn't to muddy the waters of Adventist theology. Well, that's reassuring. Francis Nichol, editor of the Review, echoed skeptical Avenus when he wrote, quote, Is it the purpose of the Bible conference to reconstruct the rugged scriptural framework of these doctrines, or perhaps even to discard some of them? Why not devote our energies wholly to gathering men and women into the safety of the divinely erected Advent House of Refuge? End quote. Right, so he's reflecting the concerns that he's hearing, that A, the Bible conference is here, like, what are they going to do? Just kind of rebuild our doctrines because they can't change them. They can't take them away. So what's the point of just gathering together to, 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 to once again, arrive at the truth of the Sabbath? And if you're going to spend all that money and all that time and stuff like that, why not just devote our energies to, to evangelism is basically what they're asking, right? Like, why are we wasting time and money with this Bible conference thing? Well, Nickel then changes sides, and he says, quote, We are sure these questions are sincere. We are also sure they are based on a misunderstanding, end quote. Okay, church leaders were clear about what the Bible conference wasn't going to do. They were, let's say, less clear about what it was going to do. Because just after saying that members were misunderstanding the purpose of the Bible conference, Nickel offered a confusing metaphor to explain the purpose of the Bible conference. It is possible to, in his words, quote, 
Beautify, strengthen, and enlarge a stately, venerable structure. It is possible to, in his words, quote, beautify, strengthen, and enlarge a stately, venerable structure without disturbing a single supporting pillar or removing one stone from the foundation, end quote. Yeah, we get it. The Sabbath and the second coming are those pillars holding this uh, stately, venerable structure of this edifice of truth, as he puts it up, okay? Like those pillars are our doctrines, and you can beautify, strengthen, and enlarge this structure without messing with the with the pillars, without messing with the doctrines, okay? That's his point. But then he, he mixes his metaphor up when he says, quote, the arguments, the evidence, the illustrations we employ in our evangelistic meetings are so many paths over which we endeavor to bring men to acceptance of these doctrines. Okay, so the, the, the pillars are the doctrines, and then the, the whole house is the, as he puts it, is the edifice of truth. But then the arguments, the evidence, the illustrations we employ are the paths that lead to the house? Are we fixing the paths or are we or are we enlarging and beautifying and strengthening the house? Where is the work being done here? Like <laughs> like what's being renovated? I thought we were trying to fix the house, the the edifice. Now we're trying to fix the paths. But don't worry, if that is a little bit unclear, Nickel was not done clarifying. Quote, the edifice, that is the house, is of God, but the paths leading to it bear the marks of our workmanship. It is thus that we are workers together with God and for the salvation of men. End quote. Okay, now I get it. We are trying to lead people to the house. The Bible conference is tending to the sidewalks and the landscaping around the house to make the house more attractive. Why don't you just start with this statement? I mean, if this was a speech, I, I could understand this process of kind of working out what you mean in real time, but this is the front page of the review here, guys. And yet, no sooner had Nickel written this line than he switches gears again. Quote, if the Bible conference did nothing more than focus the eyes of our ministry and laity for a united moment on the whole array of our doctrinal teachings, that in itself would be worthwhile. End quote. Okay, so you're going to fly hundreds of people around the world or ship them to to meet so that the world church through these few hundred people can focus their eyes on Adventist doctrines for a united moment? O okay. Okay. Before you can think too much about that when Nickel changes gears, one more time. Quote, there is another and perhaps even more worthwhile reason for devoting special study to our doctrines. Prophecy colors virtually all our doctrines. We talk of the rapidity of world changes in recent decades, but do we realize that these rapid changes in the world have a direct bearing upon a great many of our teachings? End quote. At this, I think Nickel finally found his footing because he got more specific. He, he says, we believe that the second coming is near and that the signs of the times point to his soon return, but we haven't really had occasion to consider how some of these crazy world events since the First World War might actually be signs of the times. We need to, we need time to sit down and, and think about these things together as a church and, and figure out like what happened over the last 30 or 40 years that may in some way relate to Bible prophecy that we should maybe be talking about in our evangelistic series. Okay, he says most people don't believe the Bible was inspired anymore, or many people don't. And we need to think through our response to this. And Nickel ended with yet another summary of the purpose for the Bible conference. Quote, the purpose of this conference is to enable the ministry of the Advent movement to give the trumpet an increasingly certain sound, end quote. 
So the goal is to to help pastors and evangelists be more confident in their message. All right, so what do we got here? Um, let's go make the house prettier. Uh, I mean, landscape the yard. I, I mean, focus on Adventist doctrine together. I mean, give the trumpet a certain sound. Okay, I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult here, guys. I promise. I'm just saying that I understand why people back then might have been a little confused about what's going on here, okay? But don't worry, friends, because, well, that was only the first of two articles that Nickel published trying to explain the, the purpose for the Bible conference. And, well, the next week he took up his pen again and answered some other objections that he had been hearing. This time he responded to another crowd of Adventist grumblers, those who wanted the Bible conference to answer their deepest theological questions. I mean, hundreds of people sent in their questions. And, and one person apparently even sent in a printed agenda of how the Bible conference should go. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You have these Adventists out there. They probably exist everywhere, these people. But you have these Adventists out there who, <laughs> who still do this stuff. It's like... Uh, dozens of people or more like will plan a general conference session and you you'll have like some dude in word <laughs> print out how he thinks it should go and just sends it in as if as if the people who plan it are just gonna say oh yeah this is the better plan let's just change it up <laughs> oh man um I just I love that I want to meet that guy who sent in the agenda <laughs> already printed right not just some notes but just I'm gonna print it out for you this is what it should look like and how things should go and you think the general conference is just gonna say oh yeah you know he's like why did we do all this work um anyways the questions that that were sent in ranged from who is Melchizedek to who is the king of the north um, from Daniel 11. And it made sense because a gathering of Adventist scholars from around the world is the perfect place to ask your questions about the Bible, although that last question might have been related to Lewis Weir because uh, that was a question he had been addressing. And, and of course, church leaders knew that once you go down the road, uh, that road at least, where you start answering everybody's questions, the members of the Bible conference would never be permitted to leave. There's just too many questions. And they asked them in part because the general conference had a policy of, we're not here to settle your debates because people would usually send these questions to the general conference. This is uh, God's highest authority on earth and all that kind of stuff when it's when it's meeting in session. And the general conference's position was always, we're not here to settle these questions for you to speak definitively on who Melchizedek is or the king of the north is or all that. So, okay, people got that message, but here's a gathering of Adventist scholars, a Bible conference. Well, I mean, it's a Bible conference. If I can't send my questions to the general conference, who do I send them to? I'll send them to the Bible conference. Uh, but, you know, there's just too many questions. And in, in order for this meeting to be useful, the organizers believe it has to be really focused. Nickel said that 68 hours or so were available for discussions and, uh, and, and that this wasn't enough time to consider what he called secondary matters. Of course, Branson and company got to decide what was a primary matter and what was a secondary matter, didn't they? And it was eh, somewhat arbitrary or entirely arbitrary, because Branson said the conference would deal with issues that touched upon salvation, not what he called, quote, a lot of side issues that have no direct bearing on the plan of salvation, end quote. Well, okay, fine. Probably the Melchizedek question or the Daniel 11 question doesn't have a direct bearing on salvation, I suppose, but... Then again, after Branson was done welcoming everyone to the Bible conference, the very first presenter was Siegfried Horn, 
whose paper was titled, Recent Discoveries Confirm the Bible. It was an interesting paper, no doubt, but it could hardly be said to be essential to anyone's salvation. Okay? I mean, no offense to the archaeologists out there. So Branson wasn't really after consistency here. He was after a lack of controversy, it seemed. One Lake Union Herald writer put it this way, quote, In the 80 meetings held during this 13-day Bible conference, all speakers held to the affirmative, avoiding all non-essential or controversial questions, end quote. And, and that, I think the writer meant, was a good thing. Right? This was the goal, to, to have both a robust discussion, affirming Adventist faith while putting on a display of unity and certainty. And I mean putting on a display quite consciously here, because when church leaders pitched the Bible conference, they were very intentional about connecting it with the early Adventist Bible conferences in the 1840s. While Branson observed that there hadn't been a Bible conference in 34 years— it was, of course, alluding to the 1919 Bible Conference, but he doesn't mention it really by name. And, you know, this wasn't just an oversight by Branson. Branson's lieutenants also are, are always very careful not to bring the 1919 Bible Conference up by name, let alone discuss really anything in, that happened there. Leroy Froome wrote an article for the ministry entitled Our Earliest and Latest Bible Conferences, and Froome doesn't mention the 1919 Bible Conference at all. When he says the earliest and latest, he meant the first ones and this one, not the 1919 one in between. It's as if the, the 1952 Bible Conference was a direct successor to the one in 1848. I mean, you'd, you'd be forgiven for forgetting the 1919 one ever happened. Now, Nickel does mention it in one of his two articles in the review, but only in passing. Branson, in explaining the purpose of the Bible Conference, said... Quote, we meet at our world headquarters in Tacoma Park, Washington, D.C., not to find new and untried ways or teachings, but rather to build on the solid foundations laid so well in the Bible conferences of 1848 and later. End quote. 1848 and later? The 1919 Bible conference might as well have just never happened, because in a sense, I mean, maybe for them it didn't, because the records of the conference had been lost not destined to be discovered for another 20 years. But they still knew something about it, okay? They still knew it happened. They still knew who was involved. No doubt they still knew what, what the controversy that had surrounded it, and maybe it's because people like Washburn and Holmes were still around, that they didn't just want to draw attention to it and maybe start that all over again. I don't know. But the fact that they don't talk about the 1919 Bible Conference suggests to me that, that they were very focused on the 1919 Bible Conference, okay? Because it seems that the 1952 Bible Conference was designed to be the opposite of the 1919 Bible Conference from the start. For starters, it would be recorded and open to anyone who wanted to attend. You can jump up in the gallery and, and listen in. Two volumes would be published containing the papers that were presented there, right? Unlike the 1919 Bible Conference, we just have these minutes. We don't you know, nothing, it, it didn't go public after that, and it wasn't open to anyone to just show up and listen in 1919, okay? And so this, this is why church leaders were so constant about how not one bit of doctrine would be challenged or changed, right? This would be a display of confidence, like lions sunbathing on a rock, not a flock of theological crows gathering in near secret as in 1919. Now, I'm over-dramatizing, dramatizing? There we go. I'm over-dramatizing this, just for emphasis, okay? Now, even during 
the Bible conference. Leaders were still explaining why they were there. In fact, even after the Bible conference, they were explaining why the Bible conference was held. Um, E.D. Dick, a general conference man par excellence, preached that first Sabbath, and we can all thank Michael Campbell for getting these recordings digitized. Here's Dick. Brother Dixon has said we are in the midst of a great Bible conference. Gathered here are the administrative leaders of our world work, representative evangelists and pastors, Bible and history teachers of our colleges and training schools, leaders of the varied activities of the church. We are met together to, to examine the foundation pillars of our message. Not that there has arisen any questionings or doubtings or distrust or disbelief which have made this meeting necessary. Such is not the case. Why are we here? Well, Dick went on. Nevertheless, it is well for us to restudy and to review and re-examine the great truths of our message. And I trust and I believe that such an examination, such a study, will lead to a, closer under, a clearer understanding of the truth and a clearer conviction of their correctness and a deeper appreciation of their beauty and a fuller sense of their uniqueness and their importance and their imperativeness. Every, pres every presentation has been strong and helpful. And I trust that uh, <clears throat> there may arise in the hearts of all, as the result of this Bible conference, a new dedication of our lives to the living out of these grand truths which have made us a people. We are here to restudy, review, and re-examine in hopes that it will lead to a better understanding of the truth. Every presentation has been strong and helpful. Every one of them. The, the 1952 Bible conference has never really been the most interesting thing in Adventist history. I mean, anything that is just so clean, so conscientiously uncontentious, isn't going to be terribly interesting, right? It's, it's, it's staged in a sense. What were the stakes? What were the stakes? What's at stake here? There were, I mean, you know, there were controversies. There's always controversies going on in the church, but there's no great challenge here. There's no great theological challenge here. It, it seems to me that, that one of the points, at least as far as the Adventist public was concerned, was to just project confidence in a world of growing doubts, to show spiritual strength while some were wavering. The Bible conference was a response to the world that Seventh-day Adventists are still standing, that they're not slipping, they're not going away, they're not eating at each other and destroying each other like other denominations had been doing. They're not doubting. They are consistent. And that's not to say, of course, that the papers were all mere pageantry. They were very real. People walked away from this thing really feeling like it was the, one of the greatest experiences of their lives. Like Many people felt that way in 1919 as well, by the way. It had real value. And, and, and these papers can have real value for you too because not only can you read them online, but you're also going to get to listen to even more of the Bible conference when you and I step through the doors of the Sligo Church and just take our seats in the balcony and just, just, just listen. 
So hurry up already. Come on. I hear that Will Branson's on the platform right now. He's about to welcome everyone. So come on, hurry, hurry. We're going to be late. Let's go. Let's go hear what he has to say. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.